Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, open the word, open our hearts, fill us and feed us. Your word is life to us. May we understand and hear with faith and be changed. And I ask, Lord, for that for me and for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to have you, we're going to say this one, uh, this verse uh, a number of times. I wanted you to get it in your heart. I'd like to think that when you go out of here, you could virtually recite the verse. Uh, say, say this after me. No one has seen God at any time. Say it again. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God. Say that. Say it again. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Now let's say it all together. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That is just loaded with insight. All right, here we go. We're going to talk today about trusting the Father. I don't think anyone goes through life without experiencing events that make us ask the question, where was God? We've all prayed prayers that seem to go unanswered. We've all observed suffering and evil that seem to go unopposed. But to be fair, we'd have to admit, we also have seen things that are beautiful and very good and that there have been times our prayers were answered quickly and powerfully. Yet it's the apparent failures and the darkness that seems to capture our attention. And whether we admit it or not, those things can shake our faith. They can make us question the goodness of God. You, you following me so far? You know, we all do fine and, and, and we can see issues come and issues go, but every so often you're going to get zinged, it seems. Something happens and you pray and you're seeking help and everything else and the answer does not come quickly. Or something happens that's really unexpected and, 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 and more troublesome than you, than you thought. And, it, and it, you, you ask, is he there? Is this, a, I mean, is he listening? Is, th is this a game? I mean, those kinds of doubts want to come in. And you think, oh, I shouldn't think that. But there's things that shake us. Well, there's another thing, and I want you to see it in the next paragraph. And there's something else that can shake our faith in the goodness of God. It's those passages in the Bible that tend to make him look cruel or unfair, particularly in the Old Testament. Yes, such passages also exist in the New Testament, but since most are in the Old Testament, some people have concluded that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Some assume that it's God the Father we meet in the Old Testament, and God the Son, whose name is Jesus, only arrives in the New Testament. And this Jesus seems to have a very different personality from his temperamental father. He's kind, loving, and merciful, while the Father is, well, mean. If that view of the Father becomes part of a person's thinking... It becomes very hard to trust him. The bold statement of John 3.16 comes as a shock. For God so loved the world that he sent 
his only begotten son. We think of Jesus as loving us, but not the father. He's the one who does all those mean things in the Old Testament. Yet John 3.16 says, our salvation is the father's idea. And that he sent Jesus because he loved every human being. Did you follow that? Now, it just doesn't fit the pictures, does it? Now, I, I'm, I'm, I am not, I am studiously not going to bring up any of those particular issues. We're not gonna, I'm not going to try to argue or debate or discuss some of the passages you'll read that just are troublesome, like, how could God do that? What's he, what's he thinking? I mean, you know, it, it, it's unsettling. I was just uh, talking with a pastor uh, this week who wrote a book, and it's what we were discussing, and, uh, but he brought up every negative thing in the Bible, uh, uh, you know, and, and like, why did God do this? And how could a good God do that? And da, 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 And you, you can, he just, I thought, this is checklist, man. Anybody who wants to attack Christianity, just read your book. You got it. Uh, they're there, aren't they? Those passages. But then you read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him. God loved us. So who is he really? Is he mean or is he loving like Jesus? Today, using only one verse, John will reveal a truth that destroys false assumptions about the Father and the Son. He explains something that will help us trust our Heavenly Father, even when bad things happen, even when we read passages in the Bible that we find troubling. This single truth will steady us. When doubts try to shake our confidence in the goodness of God, what an important verse. Let's look at it carefully. So no one will miss the point of what he's been saying. John describes the nature of Jesus once more. Using the most unmistakable terms, Jesus is not God the Father, but he is the only begotten God. Say that phrase again. Only begotten That's really important. The Greek I give you there, monogades theos, which means he is his son. To beget is very different process than to create or make. To create essentially means to bring something into being which did not formally exist. When God or a person creates something, they always create something which is different in nature from themselves. For example, God created the earth, the animals, and humans. Or we might say an artist creates a work of art. But in each case, what is produced is of a lower nature than the one who created it. You follow what I'm saying? You create, even you can even create out of nothing if you're God, but you create something that's not you, that's different in nature than you. To make something is essentially a process of rearranging materials which already exist in order to produce something useful. But begetting is the reproduction of our own nature. Let me say it again. Begetting is the reproduction of our own nature. Cats beget kittens, dogs beget puppies, and humans beget babies. I've said that so many times, you might cross-stitch it or something, or think it's scripture. I got it from C.S. Lewis. Uh, but but it, you sure get the picture. God can create a universe out of nothing, but the universe is still of a different and lower nature than he. He can make Adam out of the dust of the ground and even make him in his own image. But humans are not divine. We have been made a little lower than God. 
But John says Jesus is the only begotten God, meaning God did not create him out of nothing, nor did he make him out of a substance. Instead, God reproduced himself in a son who is fully God. In other words, he is of the same divine nature as his father. Is that clear? Now, this is what's being said. You will not understand the gospel of John, nor will you understand, I mean, things Jesus says, everything else, if you and I don't get a hold of this. We are seeing the divine son who comes from heaven to earth, becomes a man, and then returns to heaven. You've got to get that in your head. It's all through the gospel of John. When John writes, he's different than Luke. He's different than Paul. John will write and his themes come weaving in and out all the way through. He'll say something, it'll go down, and it'll come up a little later, say this, that, say, talk about that again, then he'll talk about that again, then he'll talk about that again. He does that through his gospel, he does that through his letters. People liken it to a, a woven rope. You have those strands all woven, it's like it'll come up. This theme of, 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 of Jesus saying, I've come from the Father, or speaking of himself as, as, as God, as having been there when Abraham was there, stuff like that. You'll see it all through the gospel. Jesus is unique. Though he became a man, he is not like any other man. Unlike us, his spirit did not begin in Mary's womb. He came from heaven to earth at the moment he was miraculously conceived. Every human being is made up of three basic elements a spirit, a soul, and a body. Our body is the physical tent in which we live. Our soul, though the word is used in various ways in the Bible, is basically the life that animates our physical body. Do you understand? It's the biological life. It's it's the life in you. It's not spirit. It's the life in you. That's why the Bible says animals also have a soul. And our spirit is us. That conscious person, intellect, will, and emotions who lives within or through our body. I say this over and over again, but it's so important. I was just talking with the pastor and, and he, he believed that God had breathed spirit, his spirit, into Adam. He did not. He breathed the breath of life. Do you see the difference? Well, in his theology, if you take that, that God has breathed his divine spirit, then all humans bear within them the divine. And what we have with sin is really just confusion and stuff, and you need to get back to the true good nature that's deep inside you. That's humanism, isn't it? That's, uh, that's, that's Christian science. That's all kinds of theologies that have that thing. You just got to get back to the real you. You're really good deep inside. You've just had all this bad stuff layer on top of you. The Bible says, no, you're really rotten deep inside. But it, what, it, what it says is, not, not rotten, what it says is you're selfish, you're independent, and, and you're rebellious. And, and without the Spirit of God, that force in you takes control. Even when you don't want it to, in a sense. It does, doesn't it? And we see it in all of us. It's just the way we're wired. We so need the Lord. So understanding this is a big deal. You, are, you, have a, you have a body, it's your tent. You have a soul, that's the life. The, it's in the blood, that's what animates you. It's what leaves when this thing dies. But you don't have a spirit. 
you are spirit. You, trust me, you do not cease to exist when this body dies. I'm telling you. I, I, mean, I, just, I don't know why I narrated this last night, but I did. So here goes. Um, dear friend of mine, good, wonderful, trustworthy pastor. He and I are driving someplace, and I'm talking about things, and he says, you know, I died. And I said, I didn't know you died. You must tell me. <laughs> and he, he said, when I was uh, first married, and he said, I came down with this, this uh, terrible disease, and, and I went to the doctor, and they were giving me a shot of penicillin, and the nurse had me on a table, and, and, and he said, I, no sooner did the needle just even touch my skin, and I began to, to feel dizzy, and it just swept over me. And, and I said to her, I said, I'm feeling dizzy. And she said, well, put your head down. And, so you put, right? and he said, the next thing I knew, I was standing up. And I stood up and I looked around and I was looking for the nurse and, and there she was down on the ground. And there I was down on the ground. And she says, I looked down and there's my body. And I thought, oh boy. He said, is this a dream? And then he said, no, this isn't a dream. I'm awake. And then he says, you know, people talk about going down those tunnels. I went down a tunnel. And he says, so I'm, I'm going down this tunnel, whatever this thing is. And he says, on the way, I called out and I said, God, if you let me live, I'll preach the gospel. And he said, I was sucked back into my body like a vacuum cleaner. Just, <laughs> you know, and I came to on the floor. He says, so when people ask me and they say, what would you do if you weren't a preacher? He said, oh, that's easy. I'd be dead. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you lived long enough to encounter some of this? As a pastor and, and, and living in a medical family, I, I've encountered it a bunch. This is not some idea out of, out of space. Look, I'm telling you, when you die, you will simply come up or fall out of your body and you will be there and there it is and there you are. That is why what we're talking about when we talk about knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ is so important. This is not a game. It is not our philosophy and our way of living. It is about life and death. When Jesus became a man, he too was made up of these same three elements. Like every other man, he had a spirit. But here is the key difference. His spirit was begotten by God and existed before he was conceived. Ours begins at conception. When you conceive a child, you actually have the power from God to conceive an immortal spirit. Isn't that amazing? Mary and I have conceived three immortal spirits. They, they're never going to cease. How do, that's just an amazing capacity that God has given us. And Jesus is uniquely God's son. When we humans believe in him, we become adopted by God as his children. That means we share with Jesus the full relationship and privileges he has with the Father. Joined to him by faith, we are given the right to become children of God. But we never become begotten children. We are always created beings. This is an important distinction. Jesus, insofar as his spirit is concerned, is not a created being. He is begotten which is why it was possible for him to be present before all creation and why it was possible for him to speak the universe into existence at the Father's direction. 
Because humans are essentially spirit, we are immortal. That means we never cease to exist once we've been conceived. Jesus is, however, eternal, not simply immortal. We have a beginning at conception and then continue to exist. But as God's begotten son, Jesus existed with God before all things began. And of course, we'll continue to exist forever. The Bible says nothing about how God begot his son. It certainly had nothing to do with the normal processes of biology. In other words, there was no mother involved. Nor does the Bible say that because Jesus was begotten as a son, that there would have been a time when he did not exist. We are safe to assume that since he is a divine being, he must always have existed, that there never was a time when he did not exist. However, since the Bible does not provide an answer to this question, our proper response is to humbly accept it as a mystery and avoid trying to invent a solution. Maybe more will be shown us when we step into the next age. But then, until then, we can leave such unanswered questions alone and preach what God has revealed in his word. Jesus is not the Father, but as John has shown us, he came forth from the Father and is as fully God as his Father. When he became a man and lived among us, he made the invisible Father visible. He explains him. That means he is the supreme revelation of the heart and character of God. Jesus is just like the Father, and the Father is just like Jesus. That's why when confusion arises, and I begin to doubt the character of God, I can always come back to this truth. I can trust the God I cannot see, because I trust the Son whom I have seen. When we read the Gospels, don't you get a clear picture of Jesus? There's all kinds of questions, but you, but you know who he is. You know he's merciful. You know how he treats sinners. You know how he treats, you know how he feels about religious people that prevent other people from coming to God too. You, you know how he treats women. You know how he treats children. You know, you, you know how he treats demon-possessed people. You, you know, how, you know his, 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 his patience, don't you? Do you trust him? Would you let him lead your life? Can you be in a situation where you don't understand what's going on, but you say, Jesus, I'm putting my hand in yours, and I trust you, and I'll follow you. Can you do that? Yes. When you see him, you see the Heavenly Father. Now, see, and I'm going to continue to develop this, because this is really important. Because in our minds, we'll talk about Jesus one way, and the Father another. It's just almost instinctive. Whom did they see? If we look closely at this verse, John 1.18, we discover John is also revealing another truth. He says the Father has never shown himself to the human race. Yet the Old Testament records numerous appearances of a divine person. A person people worshipped and even called God. If it wasn't the Father, then who was it? Did you notice that? No one has ever seen God at any time. That's basically the Greek. It's a double, it's a double negative thing. It's no one has ever seen God at any time is what John says. John opened this verse with a startling statement. He said, no one up to this time has ever seen God, my translation. Yet there were numerous appearances of a divine person in the Old Testament whom people worshiped and even identified as God. For example... I'm going to just tick them off here. I'm just going to, I mean, by that, I'm not making them mad. I'm going to, I'm going to list them. 
the, the Bible says the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam, I mean, pardon me, Abraham and Sarah served a meal to a man whom Moses identified repeatedly as Yahweh and whom Abraham called the judge of all the earth. You remember that account? When I was in Israel a couple times ago, we had riding with us on a bus, a Jewish young man, not a Christian, uh, uh, not a Messianic, but a, but a Jewish young man and a very open one, very lovely guy. And he was riding with us and, I, and, and, and our guide, who is a, Messi, a, a, a Russian Jew, Messianic Jew, spirit-filled, love, just a wonderful man. We love him dearly. Well, he'd invited this guy to just ride with us. He wanted, his, he wanted him to meet us in this group. And so he and I, you know, we're dialoguing. He's in the jump seat and I'm right leaning over and we're, we're having this wonderful conversation. But I asked him this question. I said, tell me honestly, as a Jew, when you hear the thought that God had a son, is that just polytheism? I mean, is that just gross to you? I mean, it's like, oh, I can't believe these Christians and their polytheism. I said, is that what you hear? He's, and, and I expected, well, yeah, you know. And he said, no. He's, I said, do you have a possibility in your mind that there, God could have had a son? He said, well, he said, for example, he said with Abraham, when those three men came, and he, he said, Abraham called one of them Yahweh. He had served him, he said, a meal. And he said, by the way, it wasn't a kosher meal. <laughs> Milk and meat. Look at it. Yeah. And, 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 and he said, he he's, he's served him a meal and he talked with him. He said, he called him Yahweh. And then he said this. Could our father Abraham be wrong? And his answer is no. So he's saying there are mysteries. There's someone, there's something going on that we see, but we don't quite know what to do with it either. I thought that was wonderful. All right. Fleeing from Sarah, Hagar met an angel of the Lord when she, she called... And, and then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, I have even remained alive after seeing him. Jacob actually wrestled with a man whom he said was God, Elohim. And afterward named the place the face of God, Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Look how blunt that is. And then John says, no one has seen God at any time, ever. Moses and Aaron, along with Aaron's two eldest sons and 70 elders, went up on Mount Sinai and, quote, saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. That is a fellowship meal. It's a peace offering they're having after the covenant's been formed with God himself. Moses, on another occasion was hidden in the cleft of a rock on Mount Sinai while the glory of God passed by and he was allowed to see his back. Joshua encountered a man just before the battle of Jericho who said he was the captain of the host of the Lord and before whom Joshua bowed down and was told to remove the sandals from his feet for the place where you are standing is holy. What's that remind you of? 
Moses at the burning bush, you bet. This man then gave Joshua instructions concerning the upcoming battle and is identified by Moses as Yahweh. Isaiah said he saw the Lord, Adonai, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. The angelic beings who worshipped him called him Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. And then Isaiah said, woe is me, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, Ezekiel named a specific date upon which he saw visions of God. And in one of the visions, he saw his form and the glory which radiated from him. The experience seemed so real, he responded by falling on his face. Okay. Are you seeing my point? John says, no, man has, no one has at any time ever seen God except this and 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 this. Other than that, you see the problem? One more. One more example which we might give of the encounters is the vision Daniel saw after three weeks of fasting. Remember this? He looked up to see a man. That word ish is not that I've, my sermon. It's ish. It's the word ish for man. Which appearance was very much like John's vision of the glorified Jesus. Daniel described him as one, someone who looked like a man, but he called him my Lord, Adonai. Admittedly, this person may have been an archangel, yet it, he behaved in ways that are suspiciously divine. <laughs> I mean, John descri- uh, Daniel describes him as exact same terms as the resurrected glorious Christ that you see in the book of Revelation. I mean, compare them. And Daniel's encounter may have been more than a vision in the sense of merely an internal experience, spiritual experience, because a great dread fell on the men who were with him, and he ran away. Daniel himself was less physically exhausted in a deep sleep, and he fell face down on the ground. John is not alone, is he, in making this statement. Jesus said the very same thing, so I want you to see this. John says this outrageous thing, nobody's ever seen God, and then I just showed you, oh yeah, they have. But John isn't alone. Listen to this. Jesus said it too. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And again, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the Son who is from God. He has seen the Father. Paul calls Jesus the image of the invisible, and literally the word is unseen, not seen God. In a burst of praise in a letter to Timothy, he addressed the Father as the King, the eternal, immortal, invisible, again, unseen. In other words, Jesus does not suddenly appear in the New Testament. Let me ask you, who is that guy that keeps coming and appearing in the Old Testament? The people take off their shoes and call Yahweh and bow before and worship. Who is that if it's not God the Father? I believe it's the pre-incarnate Son of God. I believe that God has always been dealing and communicating with this planet through his Son. He's the person we've met repeatedly in the Old Testament. That revelation changes the way we think about the Father and the Son. It means we can't picture the God of the Old Testament one way 
in Jesus of the New Testament another way. And that raises an important question of its own. How can we reconcile some of the very troubling passages we find in the Old Testament with the loving Son of God we meet in the New Testament? My answer has everything to do with the truth John is declaring in this verse. He says Jesus explains God. That means when I see Jesus, I am seeing the supreme revelation of the heart and character of God. And when I read passages that don't make sense to me, I can always come back to this fact. It allows me to say, I don't understand why that happened or why God felt it necessary to do that. But I still trust him. Would you say, I still trust him? Yeah. Let's say the whole thing. I, I, I don't know why that happened or why God felt it necessary to do that, but I still trust him. Now, I don't know if some of you feel that's intellectual suicide. I, I, I'm, not being, I'm not being integrous. I call it humility. I really think that we have to face something. We're not told to take our heads off and stop thinking. But come on. You, are, you and I are dealing with, with, with things that are way beyond human knowledge. And, and, and wouldn't you expect that? If you're dealing with the creator of heaven and earth, if you're dealing with the God who spoke this universe into existence, wouldn't you expect there'd be things you didn't comprehend? And, I, and there's, so it's, just, it's just a humility that we, we embrace. We don't run away from it. He's, there must be a good reason And I just don't know it yet. But I do know this. He's a good God and he never changes. Rather than find fault with him every time I come across a tough passage or something bad happens in life, I can choose to trust my heavenly father and put this matter aside until the day he can explain it to me. Because I have seen Jesus, I read the entire Old Testament differently. I know he's there too. And his heart is unchanged. So when I come across difficult passages, I assume there are explanations. That if I understood the situation as God understands it, and was as truly good as he is, I would recognize that what he did or said was right in each case. What may seem to me on the surface to be unfair or cruel was indeed necessary for reasons I don't recognize yet. I want to illustrate this. If you were to come to me and say, well, you're, you know, did you know that your wife, Mary, did this that, or such and such a thing? And what you told me was way out of character for Mary. I would, I would recognize that instantly. And I would go, I don't know what you think or what you heard, but I know that woman. I mean, who knows a woman anyway? But <laughs> I don't mean that as a slur. I, I, I don't. I love the fact that I never quite figure her out. It's part of the delight I've had in her all these years. She just, every so often, just like, whoa, you know? And, and but so, I, I mean that. But what I'm saying is, I know her character. And you say, well, you know, she did that? <laughs> no, she didn't. I mean, I don't know what happened, and I don't know who you saw. Maybe it looked like her. But that wasn't my wife. You know, you, you, have, you know people like that? There's people you just know if they told you that. I'm going to give you an illustration. This might seem silly, but it's a real one. When I was growing up, um, we didn't know the Lord. Uh, I had a single mom, and it was me. That was it. And my mother was pretty unhappy, and, and I, was, I was pretty unhappy myself. 
And um, we had one person in our family that actually had his head on straight and was intelligent and wise and good. It's our dog. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, I, I really believe, my mother would say the same thing, by the way, that that dog was a gift from God. Uh, we, we, I remember the day we went and got this dog, and, and it was in a little cardboard box on somebody's porch with a bunch of these. It was, just, it was, it was half thoroughbred collie and half French sheepdog, a briard. And uh, this, they, they said, this, here's this one. They said, the only problem with this one is he won't come to any other name but puppy. <laughs> and boy, was that true. The whole rest of his life, we called him puppy. It's the only thing he'd come to. He'd come to that, nothing else. <laughs> that dog was protected us. That dog was, comf- you know, loved us. You know, you saw grace. You know how a really good animal will do that. Well, this, this dog was graceful and, and kind. And, you know, we just, I, I can't tell you. I'm, I am looking forward. I'm hoping um, that dog will be in heaven. I've got, had, we've had another dog recently that will not be in heaven, I don't think. Um, that, there's another place for dogs like that. Uh, but puppy is another matter. Now, now let, me, let me get to the point on this. One time, and I'm, I'm small, I don't know what it was, but I do recall I was, I was hitting the dog. Not, not just, not, I don't know why. I wasn't angry at the dog, it was, but I was hitting the dog. I was a little kid. And the dog didn't get violent or anything. Just, but the dog's as big as I am. Dog just went boom and knocked me flat and sat on me. <laughs> and took my hand, which had been hitting him, in his mouth. He did not pierce anything. He didn't hurt me. And this, oh, but he didn't let go. I am screaming on the ground. Ah! Out comes my mother. You know what she said? She looked at this situation and she said, what did you do to that dog? <laughs> Not one thought of my baby. None of that. Why? She knew that dog. That dog would never attack me. That dog would never hurt me. If I'm on the ground and it's holding me down, I did something to the dog. She knew that dog's character. Do you follow that? Yeah, and it's true. I, I was the guilty party. And she, she didn't say one word to the dog. Oh, did he hurt you? you know. <laughs> what I'm saying is Jesus is like that dog. And Jesus shows us this heart. And he shows us the Father's heart. So even when I don't get what's going on, when the circumstances don't look right, when I'm confused by them, I still know this person. I also know that I must be careful to distinguish between things God specifically told people to do, and and I'm talking about in the Old Testament, and those things which the Bible simply reports that they did. If we look closely, we'll see that there were a lot of events the Bible doesn't endorse or recommend. It simply says happened. The same holds true for things people said. Not everything 
said in the Bible is supposed to be heard as thus saith the Lord. Many times we only have a record of what one person spoke. Because it's in the Bible doesn't mean God said it or recommends it. I've heard people quote from Job's counselors, you know, and say, here, you're supposed to do this. No, that was supposed to be not done. You have to use discernment when you read this thing. And there's things that are said and done that are stupid. Uh, I'm almost quoting one, and I won't. I'll just stay off of it. But there's just ridiculous things in there, and you can't say, well, see, what did God do here? He didn't do it. He just reported it. It's often there simply as a part of a history. God wanted recorded so we would understand why things are the way they are. And the world of the Old Testament was a very different world from the one we live in. It was a wild, primitive world, and people didn't have access to the Bible or the power of the Holy Spirit like we do. During much of the Old Testament, people didn't have the Old Testament. It hadn't been written yet. People were full of horrible attitudes, and it invited into their lives powerful demonic spirits that weren't a figment of their imagination. Meanwhile, God was trying to prepare a people who would walk with him in faith and who, to whom he could send his son as the savior of the world. Remember, there are spiritual laws God put in place that he can't ignore. This is not a game. God can't do anything he wants. You'll find most of the people who get angry at God and get all muddled up have this picture that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and omniscient. He can do anything he wants. Then why did he let that stuff happen? That's not true. He is all-powerful and all those things, but he has set in place spiritual laws, one of which is he has given the human race freedom, and he will not take it away. Why? To do so is to, is to reduce us from being made in his image. It means we can never be his children. It means we can only be his pets. He will not have that. You are being called into sonship, into daughterhood, if you want to call it that. It's all the same status. You, have, you and I have been called into relationship as the children of God, not the pets of God. And so, yes, it gets ugly. And he knew that would happen. He knew there was a price to pay. He knew people would rebel. He understood that. And yet, you who've loved him, you who've come to him, were his goal. Were his goal. He, <clears throat> he won't take away... Uh, that what's happening on earth is a, re, is a real war between dark and light and good and evil. This is not a puppet show where God can simply maneuver events. He's fighting to save as many as possible. And at times the process gets ugly. But that's not because he's that way. It's because there's an enemy who's evil and powerful and humans have given that enemy a deep hold on their minds and bodies. When what we see doesn't match the person we know, we can choose to trust the person we know. I'll say it again. When what we see doesn't match the person we know, think puppy, we can choose to trust the person we know. Humans sometimes surprise us and do things we never thought they were capable of doing. But God is not like a human. He doesn't change and there is no dark, hidden side to his heart. When he sent his son, Jesus, the father completely revealed his heart to us. And it's a heart we can trust. It's not only a good heart, it's a heart that's far better than ours. 
How do we know this? We've seen him in a way we humans can finally understand. The word, the divine son, became a man. Such truth is amazing. It's humbling. But most of all, it's comforting. It means no matter what, we can trust our heavenly father. Listen. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. How how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father? That means perfectly representing him, expressing his nature, submitted to his will. And the father is in me, guiding, empowering, revealing himself. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the father abiding in me does his works. When you see Jesus go across the lake and deliver that demonic man, the father heard the the demonic man's cry and the father sent his son to set him free. You understand? When, when, Jesus, when Jesus laid hands on a, on a blind man, he saw the Father do that. He was following. If you love Jesus, you love his Father. If you trust Jesus, you trust his Father. You say, well, what about... I? When I trust the person, there are things I may not understand, but I trust the person. And I have been told that I have seen in Jesus Christ the complete heart of God the Father. We don't know if Philip really understood what Jesus was trying to show him at the time. But the important question for us today is do you and I? Because if we do, this revelation will protect and strengthen us for the rest of our lives. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.